So the book of Acts, it's called the book of Acts, not the book of ideas or the book of good intentions or the book of thoughts. These are the actions that the church set about in her first 30 years of history. This is what the church did, Acts, okay? So Wednesday, we're gonna go verse by verse. You can join with us right here, um, seven o'clock. Be fun, but I want you to see something today. Verse 12, chapter one. Jesus has spoken to them. He has told them to go to Jerusalem and wait for him and ascend it into heaven. And they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So what do they do? What are they doing right here? They're hiding. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem. They go to Jerusalem, what do they do? They sequester themselves in this upper room because they were afraid. The people that killed Jesus are still out there. And maybe they wanna kill us. So we have to go back to Jerusalem. Okay, we'll do that. But when we go back there, we're gonna hide. This is the beginning of the church. 120 scared people hiding out in an upper room. So what happens? Chapter two, verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, we're gonna talk about this next Sunday. Pentecost is a really fascinating day idea. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So looking at time, there's 50 days between Passover and Pentecost. Jesus was with them for 40 days. He ascends. So it would appear that you have this 120 group of people in an upper room. I've been in it. It's not very big. The one that they say it is. There's no big rooms in this area. So they're in an upper room, not very big. They're together for a 10 day period of time. How would you like to be in a very small room with 120 other people? What, what would you have? Stinky? It'd be a reality, reality TV show, right? Just put cameras on it and watch. So if you wanna know what you don't like about somebody, live with them for a while. Remember your college roommates? Remember the first year of marriage? You're like, he does that? She does that? Oh no, how am I gonna live with this, right? That's how you learn. So they, they got 10 days of just kind of like, ah, and then what happens? Suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All of a sudden, brilliantly, we have the giving of God's Spirit. And then they go out from this upper room and they begin to speak. And there's all these nationalities out there that have these languages that they come with to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And as they're speaking, each different nationality hears them speaking in his own tongue. Like, how crazy is that? And so their conclusion to this is they must be drunk. Is that a good conclusion? I hear them speaking in my tongue, gotta be drunk. I mean, you would think the opposite. I can't understand what that dude is saying. He's drunk, right? It's really a fascinating, you're like, that doesn't sound right at all. So here's what Peter says, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m., bro, we're not drunk. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants, and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So what Peter says is, listen, what you're seeing take place right here is rooted in the expectation we had of Messiah. Remember what the prophet said. So he goes to scripture and then he begins to preach. Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus, It says they were cut to their heart and they said, Peter, what must we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. And so verse 41 tells us, so those who received his word and were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So from 120 to 3,120, I don't think they went back to the upper room. That would be really miserable. All of a sudden, Boom. Who's the hero of chapters one and two? Is it the apostles? No. They were afraid and they were hiding. It's God's spirit. All of a sudden, God's spirit moves. 120 people get saved. All right? So chapter five, verse 17. Here's what takes place. Peter and John, as their custom was, they walk to the temple. They go in there. They see this guy who is lame from birth. They look at him. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give to thee. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he lifts him up and the man begins to walk and to leap and to praise God. Well, this attracts a crowd. The crowd comes, they're like, what's going on here? Peter preaches, 5,000 people get saved, right? Verse 17, chapter five. But the high priest rose up and all who are with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. You have more people than us and we don't like this. So they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Oh, this is bad. Imagine being put in prison. Some of you don't have to imagine that. (laughs) And you might think, well, man, you get three hots and a flop. 
No, not back in this day. You would be put in stocks. And then you had to have someone bring you food. They didn't have a chef cooking food for you in prison back in this day. That's why Jesus, when he says in Matthew 25, visiting people in prison is important because if you didn't, they would die of starvation. So it's that kind of thing. They're in a very, very brutal situation. Bad. But what happens? But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Who's the hero here? Did they MacGyver their way out, get some you know, dental floss and duct tape and open the door? No. God opens the door, right? You had to have an accomplice to get out of prison. Yeah, we did. It was God, pretty much God. He let us out, right? God's the hero again. So chapter six, verse one. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What a bummer. Christians are complaining. Do Christians complain? It appears so. (laughs) Even within a one year of the church, there's complaining. So what happens? And the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Oh no, complaining Christians. Oh no, this is bad, bad. Oh, wait a second. Now priests are believing the context that the priest, now the priest, you have to remember the priests were not just religious people, they were political people. Remember chapter five, verse 17, it's the priest that arrests the apostles and put them in prison. That's the kind of power they had. Now you have this ruling class of people, they start believing when? When widows are cared for. How interesting. When they saw, okay, you guys will preach all this stuff and talk about all this stuff. Oh, Wow. You're caring for widows. Ooh, I like that. I like that. Tell me more about that. I think it's what Jesus says in Matthew 5 or 16. He says, let your light so shine that men see your good works, acts, your good acts, and it brings glory to your Father in heaven. There is power when what we proclaim lines up with what we practice. There's power in that. 
I'll give you the best example I have, how it can change what people think. So I've made many trips to India. Hindu is a Hindu nation, vastly Hindu. Christian numbers are single percentages, 5%, 2%, 3%, 5%, you know, very small. Um, the place we go to India, there's, there's really developed parts of India. We went to the, the poor part of India, Southeastern India. Uh, been there many times. The fourth time I went there, 2008, go there. They decided to take us to what they called a tribal village. So I'm like, okay, cool. And we drive way back up this rutted road. We get out, we hike about uh, two miles and we end up in this village. And it's on the side of this, just this deserted mountain, essentially. And this tribe had for years and years just kind of wandered and been nomadic. And the government was trying to settle them down. So they built these structures for them. And they were terrible structures, like six by 10, concrete floor, cinder block walls, metal roof, whole family in them. So you're like, that's like a jail cell. And normally you go into a village in India and while there's problems in it, no doubt, there's still kids playing and laughter and there's a certain beauty to it. There's gardens and there's, you know, there's activity. It's nice. Not in this place. It's to this day, the most desolate, hopeless place I've ever been in my life. Just no kids playing, windswept, dry, dusty, just nothing. They had no water there. Their source of water was a mile and a half away. And it was a mud hole that they'd have to get water out of that all kind of animals would use as well. So just brutal. And then they, were, they would eat this, this root thing that because of the weather, they were digging five feet into the ground to get this root at this point. Brutal, brutal existence. And so that's just depressing, depressing. And then to make matters worse, they said, hey, would you come pray for someone who's sick? I'm like, yeah, we'd love to. So we went into one of these little structures and we get in there and the smell was just overpowering because there was a woman and she's laying on the ground and you could see that she had um, difficulty because there was just kind of a ring of diarrhea that, that she'd been kind of just making a circle, right? And she had this like 15 month old baby, baby that's clinging to her. She's, she didn't even move. She just lays there. Her husband is just in the corner with PTSD just sitting there. So we get down to pray for her. I put my hand on her. I've never felt somebody so hot. Just, she is burning up. Pray, pray for healing, pray for anything. Nothing happens. So we leave, walk the two miles, get in the car. I don't think I said a word for two hours. Just trying to process this in my mind, thinking about as a dad, as a husband, just brutal. Like, what would I do? This is brutal. Um, my job at that point, I was teaching at a couple of churches They were doing some stuff. So I teach at a church. The second church I taught at about eight o'clock that night, I decided to teach on the Good Samaritan. So I'm teaching on the Good Samaritan and I'm just kind of going through and I'm talking about the priest that sees somebody in need and walks to the other side of the road and then walks by. And then Levite sees the same dude in need and walks to the other side of the road and walks by. And right as I'm teaching, I thought, I'm the priest and Levite. That's who I am. I just left that woman in that house to die. She could have taken my spot. I could have walked home. I'm healthy. Why didn't we carry her down and put her in the car and take her to the hospital? What was I thinking? I was like, oh, I, I couldn't finish that story fast enough. 
I grabbed Billy Graham. He was our guide over there. I said, Billy, we have to go back up to that village and we need to get that girl to a hospital. I do not want to be the priest. I don't want to be Levi. I want to be a good Samaritan. He's like, but tomorrow morning, it's like nine o'clock at night now. Tomorrow morning, you're supposed to be teaching a pastor's conference with 300 people. That's five hours away. There's no way we can make it. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. We got to go save her. So he's like, you don't have to go. I will send somebody. They'll go pick her up. They'll take her to the hospital. I said, fine, as long as you're going to do that. So he does that. They go grab her. They carry her down to the car. They put her in. They take her to the hospital. The doctor's like, she was close. 24, 48 hours. It, it wouldn't look good for her. So I'm like, oh, praise the Lord. So they get IVs into her, get her, all that kind of stuff. She had a, gotten some kind of disease, probably dysentery or something from drinking the water out of that mud hole. Well, it's gonna happen. So I'm like, well, we're gonna help her get healthy. She's gonna go right back to this village. She's gonna drink that same water again. All we did was push the ball out three months or four months. He said, well, the problem with this tribal village is they need a well but no one can get a, a, a well driller up there because it's so steep and so, such a nasty area. I said, Billy Graham, you can get a well up there. You can do this. I know you can. He's like, I don't know, man. I said, if you can do it, Edgewater will pay for it. So come home. Two months later, he calls me. Hey, here's how we can do it. I, I can hire this monster truck, like something that probably was in the circuit in America and then got shipped over to India. I can hire this monster truck and they can tow this trailer up there and then we can drill a well, but it'll cost about 12 grand. I said, do it, do it. So we paid for that well, got drilled, put in there. And Billy Graham later told me like six months later, the place has been transformed. There's gardens growing. They've got tomatoes. They've got fresh water. People are laughing. People are happy. It's amazing. The gospel's moving in there. They love Jesus, but here's the best part. There's a guy whose job it is to go around and check on these places where the government has built these kind of tribal villages, whatever. And so he does a one-year check. So he goes a year later to make his checkup. He shows up there. He's like, what happened? There's gardens here. There's smiles here. There's not a bunch of graves. I'm not asking how many people have died. Who did this? And they said, you got to call this guy named Billy Graham. So he calls Billy Graham, here's the whole story, here's how it happened, and this is what he said. This is what this government official, Hindu man, this is what he said. He said, if you keep doing stuff like this in India, all of India will believe in Jesus. Right? It's Acts chapter six. When we do in practice what we preach, it has incredible power, right? Right, so brilliant. Then here's what happened. Stephen, one of those guys chosen, amazing preacher. I think Acts 7 is one of the greatest messages in the Bible recorded for us. It's brilliant. The people that don't like Jesus do not have an answer for Stephen. So guess what they do? I'll tell you, verse 54, chapter seven. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The first martyr of the church, Stephen. And we think, oh, that's so horrible. But look what happens. Verse four of chapter eight. Now those who were scattered, they were scattered because of this persecution. Went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. What the enemy wants to use for evil, I'm gonna kill Stephen. God uses that, turns that, and all of a sudden the church gets do, to do what Jesus had told it to do, take this message out. And man, there's great city, great joy in this city because of this news getting out, right? God reverses it. But there's a problem. Chapter nine, verse one. Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if, found any, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Looks like it's getting bad again. This guy is now spreading his terror to new areas. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone round him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So out of this persecution of Saul, seems like a low point in the church. Jesus saves this guy named Saul. He becomes probably, arguably the greatest evangelist missionary in history. So it was meant for evil, God turns for good. In fact, verse 20, the same chapter says, right when he gets saved, immediately he goes out and starts to proclaim Jesus. All right, so when I look at Acts, we're a third of the way into it. It's all the time I have. When I look at Acts, it just keeps going like this. There's one word for me that describes it. There's ups and downs. There's persecution, there's complaining, there's fear, there's hiding, there's, there's all this stuff, but there's like this march in the book of Acts. And so my one word for Acts is this, it's unstoppable. What's happening is unstoppable. It doesn't matter. You can arrest us and throw us in prison. You can kill us. You can scatter us. You can persecute us. You can get letters to arrest us. It does not matter. This thing just marches on Un stoppable, unstoppable. I love it. It's like a fire in August. Can you stop a forest fire in August? No. Pray this year. We don't seem to be getting some rain, do we? I'll tell you what though. Yesterday was brilliant. I say if it's gonna rain, let it be next week. Not this week. <laughs> Bring ring next week. It's unstoppable like that. Like look out, forest fire. It's like unstoppable like a teenager begging for a cell phone. That's unstoppable, man. Like a man wanting a jet ski, you will not stop him. He will find one, right? It's that just, this, there's just this, it's like the tide. Look out, this thing is moving. You will not stop it. What makes 
the church in the book of Acts march on unstoppably. Is it the apostles, how great they are? Not really. If it was up to the apostles, they'd still be hiding in an upper room, afraid. Here's what it is. And to me, it's, it's what God has wanted since Genesis 1. It's a partnership. It's a partnership. What God has always wanted. I want to partner with you, with you guys. I want you to join with me in, in what I'm doing. It's not either or. It's not just God's spirit because God's spirit has been active on earth since Genesis 1. The spirit hovering on the earth and creating what we have. It's always been active. But what you have in the book of Acts for the first time is you have a group of people now that are able to partner well with God's spirit because of the work of Jesus on the cross for them, the redemption and reconciliation that's happened to them to the Father. And now they're partnering with the spirit and brilliant things happen, right? Jesus says, go and wait in Jerusalem. And what do they do? They obey. Okay, let's partner, let's go and wait. 120 of them. I've always wondered, should there have been 121 of them in that upper room? But there's one dude going, I just don't know. I got to reshoot my camel. I don't know if I have 10 days to spare. I wonder personally, what Matt have I missed out on because I have not obeyed what Jesus has told me to do? Now wait for me. 10 days is a long time though. I can do a lot of work in 10 days. Trust me, wait. They obey and boom, right? Chapter six. Widows aren't being fed. In the Old Testament, when you have hungry widows, God does these miracles, right? The meal and the oil that does not run out with Elisha. The widow who has the oil in the jar and she pours it into those containers, and it does, right? There's these miracles, manna. In the New Testament, you have hungry widows. What does God do? He grabs seven believers and says, partner with me in this, and you feed them. That's different. Partner with me, all right? Chapter nine, Jesus knocks Saul to the ground, gets him saved, but then he immediately says to Ananias, a prophet in Damascus, go, join with me, pray for Saul. And Ananias is like, don't ask me to do that. That guy's a murderer. He's gonna kill me. You gotta trust me, obey me. And Ananias does that. And Paul gets converted and baptized and believes. It's this partnership. That's what you see over and over. Partnership, partnership, partnership. I love that. I love that. So church, this thing that we are now, this this organism, it's not a building. It's you and me. Church, which right now there's this, there's always like these waves. So right now there's this negative wave on church. Man, I'm not negative at all on church. I love church. You can ask my family when we travel, I am looking for, hey, what kind of church can we go to? Because I want to connect with the family of God, right? So there's some things I really love about my life. Like I love that I'm an Oregon State Beaver. I love that. I don't care that they're losers. I don't care if they never win another game. I don't care about any of that. I am a loyal, dependent fan of the Beavers. I stick with my loser team. Take that to heart when you're watching the Super Bowl, all right? love that. But you know what I love so much more than that? I'm a part of this team right here. I'm a part of the team of Jesus. That to me is the greatest gift in the world. I love the body of Christ. Love it, right? And here's why. Because Jesus promised the book of Acts. He promised it. 
It's Matthew 16. The first time Jesus mentions the church, he says this. Peter has proclaimed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven. And upon this rock, your confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will be unstoppable. That's the power that's supposed to be in this thing called Team Jesus. It's supposed to be here. Do you know that power? Do we know that power? Because if you've been paying attention to culture, here's what's happening in our culture right now. The gray kind of middle ground that you used to kind of be able to dwell in, it's disappeared. Have you noticed that? Like I have conversations with people now and it's so fascinating how quick we get to something like, you believe that? Oh, you're, I'm out. Right, there's this, this, it was on some website and, and just, it was, find out if you're, a, if you're a bigot or not. And it was one question. Do you believe marriage is between a man and a woman? If you said yes, it said you are a, a Cretan bigot. I'm like, wow, one question, okay. That's the way things, there's, it's all black and white now. And we can bemoan that and be like, oh no, this is horrible. Or you can be like, no way. The darker the days, the brighter my light can shine. If my practice lines up with what I'm preaching and I do acts kind of stuff, this is brilliant, brilliant. Like there's amazing things happening right now because it is getting that way. Like we're seeing like the, the black and white, the, these countries are absolutely kicking Christians out. What's happening in Egypt with the Coptic Christians? And just, it, it's, it's, it's black and white. And we can be like, oh no, it's over. Because I think inside of our minds, we believe the only way the gospel goes forward is a missionary with the Bible, which is important. But God's like, really? How did I save the apostle Paul? I got him. And so I've told you stories about one of my professors is really linked in. He's like, these Muslims are having Jesus appear to them in dreams all over the place. It's becoming so frequent. It's like, oh yeah, okay, that's cool. My favorite story is this, this Muslim imam in um, Africa. There's a company down in LA that makes these, they're solar chargeable Bibles, they're audio Bibles. And they come in just tons of languages, like 5,000 languages. And so they make them really cheap, like 250 a piece. And they just, they, it's a ministry. So there was someone delivering a bunch of these in Africa and they're, they're driving along this like road and blah, 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 bumping along and they're in the middle of nowhere and they come to this crossroad and there's this dude just standing there. And they're like, whoa, what's up with that? So they stop like, hey, what's going on? He's like, I'm waiting for you. What? Yeah, I had a dream. You're supposed to give me something. Like, really? Yeah, I had a dream three days ago and I walked out here and I've been waiting ever since. What took you guys so long, by the way? <laughs> and so they gave him one of these Bibles. He's a Muslim. He's the leader of his community. He hears the gospel in that Bible, believes on Jesus. And now the gospel is just spreading out in his village because of his position, right? We think, oh, it's limited to this little missionary of the Bible. God's like, are you kidding me? Unstoppable. I will be unstoppable. I'll keep marching forward. But you don't have to go all over there. Like even what's happening right here. So uh, I was invited on Tuesday to this child welfare forum. Uh, we do foster care. And then I guess my position, they're like, hey, we'd like you to come and give your two cents worth. So I said, oh yeah. 
I will get my two cents worth. Thank you for the invitation. You may never invite me again, but thank you for the invitation. It was really great, actually. Great people. And you kind of move around a little bit. It's about an hour and a half. And I'm sitting next to this, just this wonderful lady. And she said, you're the pastor at Edgewater. I said, yeah. He goes, I want to tell you this. I want to tell you thanks. Because some people in your church got together and, and, and I had some problems with, with a fifth wheel I was staying in and they, they kind of fixed it, but they said, you shouldn't live in this fifth wheel. And so they helped me get into a home. And I just wanted to, it was just, it's just, I'm so thankful for that. I just want you to know that. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. So then I'm go, I'm, I'm, it's over and I'm walking out and this lady grabbed me and she works for um, child wel- welfare and she goes, you're the pastor at Edgewater, aren't you? I said, yeah, I am. She goes, I want to tell you how often my clients will say how the people of Edgewater are rallying around them and helping them. And I just want to personally thank you for what you guys are doing in our community. I was like, wow, that's awesome. And here's one you probably don't know about. You know, you probably don't know anything about those, but uh, this is a big one for me. And I, and I was wishing we had some video of it because it's brilliant. I don't know what it was, three weeks or four weeks or five weeks ago, somewhere in that way. It, 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 as you get older, does time just kind of compress together? You're like, was that, was that last year or last decade? Man, I don't even know, right? So uh, I don't, I, I, it was some time ago, recently. Maybe it was end of December or something. We heard about this mom, three kids living in a car. Mom's working a full-time job. It's not that she's not trying, she's working a full-time job, just no houses for her. So parents, think about your three kids waking up in the back of a car on Monday morning and needing to get to school. How miserable is that? How do they brush their teeth? How do they comb their hair? How do they wash their clothes? Like, it's just heartbreaking to me for those kids. So the kids went into safe families with the Blands, brilliant couple. They have three kids of their own. They just doubled it. Now they went to six. They have had six kids for a while so that they could brush their teeth and take a bath and get clean clothes and head to school and not be bullied because of something they have no control over. So took care of that. And then the Cabot family said, we'll get them a home. And so they started working on a home. And then three weeks ago, 25 of you got together on a Friday, grabbed yourself out of storage and wherever it was and helped move this family into their own home. And kids were crying and laughing and running around. I got my own room, right? That's brilliant to me. That's happening right now in our town. Unstoppable. It's unstoppable. I want more and more and more of that. My, my hope with the book of Acts as I studied it and brought it was, I want this stuff to burn in us. Burn in us. Because I'm not satisfied with the status quo in Grant's Pass. Not like, oh, it's just the way it is. No way. And there's one ingredient in this book that I want you to see. It's the main reason why I taught this. I want you to notice this. Because yes, there's partnership, but in the partnership, there's always this ingredient that's there. So notice this, chapter one, verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Chapter one, verse 24. And they prayed and said, you Lord, you know who hear, you know the hearts of all, show the one of these that you've chosen. 242. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and prayers. 431. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Chapter eight, verse 15. Peter and John come down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Chapter nine, verse 40. But Peter put them outside and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Chapter 13, verse three. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What do you see? They pray. They pray. They do more than pray, no doubt about it. They're not the church that's like, okay, we prayed, we don't have to do anything. They're the church that prays because they say, we want to do something. We want an open door. Show us the open door. Show us what we can do. How do we partner with you? They prayed so they could partner. And that's this theme you see in it over and over and over, and they change the world. And I want my world to be changed. I want Grants Pass in Josephine County to be changed. And I think we're, we're, I always just sense like there's, 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 we're on the edge of something. I don't know what, what's holding it, but, but I sh- certainly hope it's not because I haven't asked. Because the Bible does say you have not because you ask not. Jesus says, ask and seek and knock. And throughout, actually you see prayer and I study and I think about it. And guess what? It is super hard for me to pray. I can study the Bible for six hours, no problem. And no problem at all. But I will start praying. I'll be like, six minutes, that's it? I prayed everything I could possibly pray about. Why in the world? It's like when I pray, there's like this force that seems to align itself against me. Hmm. wonder what that could be. Why is it so hard to pray? We'll announce a prayer night or a prayer morning or whatever it is to 1,600 people and we'll get 16. Why is that? Why is it so hard to pray? Could it be that the enemy will say to me, Matt, go ahead and study the Bible all you want. Don't pray. Don't pray. Don't pray. Could it be that? So I thought about when I was preparing this, we could do a prayer night, Monday night, and I love those, or prayer mornings, and I love those as well but we're all here right now. So maybe the way to do it is to pray right now. Because I think right now in this group, there are people that have come in here and you're exhausted by life. And if you're not good in your own life, how can we be good out there? How can we shine as bright lights when we're exhausted? So Jesus would say to you, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, learn of me because I'm meek and of lowly heart and you will find rest for your soul because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And sometimes we need someone to pray that into us. I think there are people in here who feel like they're in a desert right now. You feel like that dry tribal village and you're wondering, how do I drill a well here? How do I get out of this cycle? 
And Jesus would say to you, John 7, 37, come unto me all who are thirsty. I'm gonna give you my spirit and it's gonna flow out of you like a rushing torrent of living water. I need someone to pray that into you. I think people are sick, blowing their noses. I need healing because James 5 verse 14 says, if you're sick, call the elders and pray. I think there's marriage problems and husbands and wives. You don't know what to do and it feels like you're repeating the same cycle over and over and over and you're wondering, how do I get off this merry-go-round without the merry? And you need prayer. I think there are kids right now that are being lured by the deceitfulness of this world into actions and activities that are destroying themselves. And they need prayer. I think there's an attack. We looked at Acts 16, 17, 18, and 19. There is a concerted attack, not physically like Saul or the high priest. There's a concerted attack from powers, demons, right? It culminates in 19, where a dude, demon-possessed, beats the snot out of seven guys and kicks them out of a home naked. And the church then responds like, hey, that's a problem. We should do something. I think the enemy wants us to forget that he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Our kids, our families, whatever it is, he's seeking that and we need prayer. So if you need prayer, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take communion. After communion, we'll sing a song. During that song, some leaders will be over here, men and women who lead at Edgewater and we'll pray for you. If you need prayer, don't leave until you get prayer. Because I am expecting God to do what he's done for 2,000 years, beginning in AD 32 and continuing every year since. I'm expecting him to do that in your life and mine so that we can go into this community of Grant's Pass and see it transformed and stop saying, well, that's just the way things are. Get prayer. So Jesus... Forgive me. For knowing about prayer, but not praying. I ask that I could become a kind of person like the book of Acts, who their very nature was to pray. They didn't set aside prayer times or prayer nights or prayer mornings because they prayed. It was their very DNA. It was their nature. It was instinctive. I want to become an instinctive prayer. May we be a church of instinctive prayers. The first step is always prayer. Our natural response is prayer. Shape us like that. I pray for exhausted, dry, hurt people 
to be healed today because they've asked. That you would release your spirit as torrents of living water to bring flowers in the desert, to restore souls, to redeem sinful situations, to take what our enemy would wanna use for harm in our kids, in our relationships, at jobs, that you would take that and turn it for good as only you can. And I pray this in your name, amen.